Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. To the Treasury market then, what a start to the year it's been. The 10-year, starting the year around 240. It's up 34 basis points since then and up another 3 or 4 basis points in today's session alone. 2.74% is your yield on a US 10-year. For year after year, many strategists have called for 3%. And for year after year, many of those strategists have been disappointed. When I can tell you this year, we're a whole lot closer than we have been for quite a while. Joining us now to discuss in New York City is a bond market legend in these parts. His name is Gary Schilling, a Gary Schilling president. Gary, always great to get your insight on what's happening Thanks, John. Glad in the to Treasury be with you. market. Can you tell me where we're at now at 274 and what kind of world we're pricing in? Well, we're in a world where the Fed has obviously got the bit in their mouth to raise rates and there is a spillover effect. I mean, if you, if you look at the entire post-war period and look at the average spillover, now this is average, of course, uh, but for every 100 basis point increase in the Fed-controlled Fed funds rate, you get a 44 basis point increase in the 10-year yield, and that's over about the next six months. Now, when you get out to the 30-year yield, it's much less. It's 34 basis points for every 100 basis point increase in the Fed funds rate. And that's what you'd expect. The further, further what you get from where the Fed is, the less the impact. And the 30-year has a lot of other forces acting on it, uh, deflationary forces in my view, things like globalization, certainly very important, things like Amazon, what they're doing to online uh, sales, a, a lot of other yeah. forces affecting the longer run. So for anyone getting excited about the reflation theme finally taking hold of the Treasury market, are you saying they need to stay, take a step back, Gary, and, and look at the bigger picture worldwide? Hey, John, I, 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 in 1981... The yield on the 30-year bond was 12.6%. And I said, in writing, we're, in, we're ending the bond rally of a lifetime. Yeah. Now, all the way down in, in yields, all the way up in prices, the, the consensus has been, oh, no, rates are going up, rates are going up, rates are going up, rates are going up. I can't remember one time when there was any general agreement with this, with this position. And, yeah, maybe it's right this time. But the point is that this is this has happened so many times in the past that I'm not persuaded because I, I look at I look at what I consider the fundamentals. I say when you look at what's going on in terms of even in the service economy, and we're increasingly as incomes as economies expand, services become more important than goods. You can only put so many cars in your driveway, but you can spend infinite amounts of money on healthcare, recreation, travel, and so on. And, and even in the service inflation area, education service uh, costs are coming down, a lot of pressure. Uh, students and their parents are saying, hey, this is too expensive. I'm going to go to apprenticeship program rather than four-year college. Uh, Health care, a lot of pressure there. And you see this, this recent uh, decision by uh, 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 Morgan Bank. Uh, um, Amazon. Amazon, yeah. yeah. And, um, and Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and you know that the, these things are really coming under control. So I think there's a there's just a lot of deflationary forces in the world, and I'm not sure the Fed has properly recognized those. They're be, they're beginning to. They've they've in effect said that the natural rate of interest 
this this sort of interest rate where we're we're in nirvana and everything is just copacetic going right off into <laughs> into the horizon <laughs> into the sunset you know equilibrium never exists it's just yeah. a it's just a momentary uh point you're passing through on the way to one extreme or the other but uh even the fed i think is beginning to recognize that the world has changed do you th- do you think uh that yields have to go down then and, and i ask in this context that uh, Fed's raised rates five times, and financial conditions are looser than ever. So uh, you could argue that uh, what they're doing isn't a problem, and uh, yields don't have to fall. Well, yeah, that, that's a good point, Mike. And I think the reality is that there is so much liquidity sloshing around the world as a result of quantitative easing. The Fed, uh, the Bank of England, Bank of Canada, Bank of Japan, European Central Bank— uh, the the Swedish Reichsbank, you have all this liquidity sloshing around the world, and it's going to take a while to soak that up. In other words, and and, and so I think you know if the Fed raises rates three times this year, four times, I'm not sure that makes a lot of difference to the overall liquidity. Now sooner or later, if the Fed continues to do what they what they always do or almost always do, and that is get credit too tight and kill the economy, get a bear market in stocks, and and uh, by my account. In 11 of 12 times in the post-World War II period when the Fed started on a tightening binge, they ultimately did achieve that. <laughs> they only had one soft well, landing in the mid-90s. But that could be years away because there's so much liquidity out there to be soaked up. Let me ask you this, uh, John. I, I've been insulting Gary all day by uh, asking him questions about the olden days. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, because you've been doing this for so long, do we have better data now uh, that would enable a central bank to get ahead of the idea that they could go too far. I mean, we, we have all these, for example, uh, financial condition indexes. I don't think so. The problem is there's really too much data and too little analysis. I mean, you look, for example, at at the, uh, the data on consumer sentiment, uh, the conference board of the Michigan, uh, two leading surveys on this. The correlation between that and what consumers spend is awful. As a matter of fact, uh, the way it is that consumer spending leads confidence, it's, it's quite the reverse of what you'd expect. It's not a leading, it's a lagging indicator. And I, I, I just think that the, the, that the idea of you can rely on data, I mean, this, this years ago, there was this belief that, this belief that uh, you could uh, design these huge econometric models of the economy, two and 300 uh, equation jobs. And I, I was trained as an econometrician uh, when I got my PhD at Stanford. And everybody thought these were going to solve the, the world. Well, the problem is that they didn't. And and there's so many nuances. There's so many unknowns. There's so many, so many things you have to put in to correct the models from blowing up, from giving you nonsensical answers, that by the time you get through, you sort of yeah. say, wait a minute, there's a lot of human nature in here that you never really can quite you can't quantify at least not in today's world. Everybody hated economists after the great financial crisis because nobody called the great financial crisis. Now wait uh, a minute, Bye. except for a Gary Schilling. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, there <laughs> seems to be. I do love the way that history has kind of rewritten itself with the words "nobody predicted this." Um, Michael, I don't know where you were going with it, but Gary, does that frustrate you that somehow we That's sit where here I was going. and we sit here and say nobody predicted this? People did. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, there's, there's always a question of the degree of prediction. I mean, it's just somebody who said, um, 
uh, say five years. I mean, we we were on top of the of the housing bubble. We first time we we started writing about this was in uh, 2002, and we said a bubble is forming sooner or later it'll crack. Now it not only did crack. Actually, February of of uh, 2008 was probably the time that you could because that was when the ABX uh, when the ABX triple uh, B uh, minus index went off the cliff. But did anybody say? February is a date ahead of time. No, we didn't, and I think we were yeah. as good as anybody. But it's always a degree. I mean, when you know, and, and hey, let's face it: the tendency is when you're right to go back and say, "Well, I told you so," <laughs> and I referred to this. And of course, uh, there are guys like Mike who will remind you that there's sometimes you said things that didn't come up <laughs> came true, and that's equally valid. But you know, it, it is a degree. It is a degree of forecast. Well, Gary- it's not a. It's not a one-off kind of. You're either right or you're either wrong. Just to finish things up with you before we before we lose you, we've got one minute left. What do you think people are getting wrong now? Um, I think they're getting wrong the conviction that this is going to continue forever. The complacency in markets is extreme. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to have a big comeuppance tomorrow or the next day. But I do think, and, and the latest uh, example of this is Bitcoin. When you see this, when people are just desperate for returns and they're going into speculative areas like this, it, it tells you that they really have, that uh, that uh, greed has overcome fear. All right, Gary Schilling, um, we will continue to hold your feet to the fire because that's what I do. <laughs> but, okay, but Mike. We love you. Uh, the bees okay? The bees are okay. I mean, it's, the, it's been a warm, I've got to say, the, warm, the honey that Gary produces snap, is absolutely yeah, I was, I was checking, I checked them out a couple of weeks ago. I had to give them a, a food. It's called fondant. It's cake decoration for they can eat to get through the winter. I don't want them to starve. But uh, out of 100 hives, I only had about five of them that have yeah. died so far in the winter. And that's yeah. pretty good. That's pretty good. Gary Schilling, a Gary Schilling and Company, and a beekeeper. We love them here on Bloomberg Surveillance. The story, though, for the equity market will be all about the tech earnings. And we have had a taster from Facebook. The uh, story from Wall Street is that less time spent on Facebook is apparently no big deal. So let's have a big conversation about Facebook, shall we, with the man who quite literally wrote the book on Facebook. It's David Kirkpatrick, CEO of and founder of Techonomy Media. David Kirkpatrick joining us on the phone. David, help me out here. Less time spent on Facebook apparently no big deal. Is it a big deal? Um, I, don't, I don't think it's yet a big deal, and thanks for having me. I think that in the United States and North America is where we saw this trend just begin for the first time ever, that there was actually a net loss of uh, daily active users. But on the global basis, which is really what's the level at which Facebook operates and you know, has to think and where its opportunity ultimately lies, uh, that was not the trend. The monthly uh, average users continued to go up globally, actually quite considerably. So I don't think yet you can say that the decline in North America in daily users is extremely serious. And the company is saying, which I probably for now would accept, that this change is something you might expect given the level of penetration this company has in the North American population. It's something more like a fluctuation. I mean, they couldn't go up forever in terms of getting you know, more than 
you know, they can't get more than everybody to be on Facebook, and, and they've yeah. gotten perilously close to that. So that particular thing doesn't worry me yet. It could if it continued to be a trend. Is it too early, David, to say that in North America that we're seeing significant signs of saturation? Oh, no, I, I think we've seen saturation coming for some time, which isn't necessarily a problem if they can at least keep um, those people there and then begin to raise their ad rates over time, which they have been able to do in many. I mean, ad rates are going up on Facebook, so uh, that's their kind of lever they can play with regardless of what happens with users. But they have to, of course, retain the interest of their of their you know, community, to use a word they love to use. To your point, ad rates are going up and ad revenue growth still looks pretty strong to me, David. So they've warned about engagement and actually the warnings of engagement actually materialised, but the warnings around ad growth haven't really materialised at all. Is there any reason to believe Facebook when they tell us that this is going to slow sometime soon? Well, you know, what, what they've said especially is that ad load, meaning the amount of ads that a given user sees when they go on Facebook, uh, will go down and that they'd actually like to see it go down a little bit. But because they seem to have so much leverage in pricing, uh, that doesn't seem to affect their results. I mean, and I think it's worth pausing to notice the unbelievable impressiveness of the financials here. I mean, this is a company uh, which is growing its revenues considerably more than its costs, uh, where you know their profitability rates increased um, and their profit growth was something like 50% uh, at a time when they're close to a $50 billion company. I mean, this is, this is something you haven't seen in companies like this before. You, you really, there hasn't been a company like this before, yeah. and the financials remain spectacular. So I think that's the reason why the stock, even though it dropped considerably in the few minutes after the earnings were released, once people had more time to digest what was really going on, they, they turned around and now the stock is up from where it was before the release. And of course, it's worth noting, David, that for all of these tech companies that report over the next 24 hours, the comps for the whole of the next year are going to be really, really tough because just last year was so, 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 so good. I looked at some of the numbers in the quarterly earnings release yesterday after the close. Headcount and costs are rising materially. Now, that may be outstripped by what they're doing with ad revenue, and that's great, David, but on the costs and the headcount, what's the story behind that? Well, I mean, I think they've said they were going to double the number of people who they devote to overseeing content to try to address some of these very serious criticisms they've received for, received for their social role, uh, that it was going to go from 10,000 to 20,000, and they said that in October. So some of that increase is probably attributable to that. I think a lot of it is also attributable to just the scale of their global growth and the fact that they continue to become a more and more important platform in literally something like 190 countries, which means they have to have people on the ground in many of those places. Um, so yeah. um, I don't think the cost problem worries me that much. I mean, I'm just looking at the, the release right now. Advertising increased 48%. Costs increased 32%. Yeah. You know, as long as they could keep that kind of ratio, they don't have a problem with costs, even if they're adding more people and spending more money. They've also said they're going to spend a lot of money on infrastructure and, and uh, server farms and you know, cloud 
infrastructure and all the back-end stuff that they have to spend on to keep this service operating. Uh, and they're very uh, aggressive in that kind of spending. But so far, there's no sign in, in, that I can see that that's affecting their profitability. To me, the threat, such as it is, and it's something of a unique one, is a political, social, sort of socioeconomic threat and, and perceptual one. And if they, if they cannot shift the narrative and begin to be seen as a positive contributor to society, I think that implies all kinds of peril, including eventually financial peril. Well, Scott Galloway of NYU has been quite vocal about this, as I'm sure you know, David. He said that the company's been tone deaf to these kind of things. Um, are things slipping? Um, yes. I mean, they, certainly they are tone deaf. I think their immaturity as a company is increasingly evident. Um, they are a young company, especially to now be a $50 billion company making this kind of profit, you know, run by someone in his early 30s uh, who has absolute power. Um, these are delicate and challenging uh, realities. Yeah. I mean, Galloway goes much further. He says Facebook should be broken up in no unequivocal terms. I heard him speak uh, just last week in Munich. Um, the guy is 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 rabidly critical of not just Facebook, but all the internet giants, but he singles them out especially for criticism. Do you believe um, Facebook should be broken up, David? No, I don't see how you could break it up. I think breakup is the wrong term. Um, but, you know, here's what I do think. Um, Facebook operates on its own with no oversight in 190-some countries uh, at, a, at a time when we know that it is having, alongside many, many deeply beneficial effects, some extremely worrisome negative effects on both individuals and society. So we have issues of addiction. And also we have a lot of other things, including issues of political manipulation inside an ungoverned platform, which we saw very evident in the United States. And Americans ought to be clear-eyed in realizing is a problem in every country. This is not, it's not just the U.S. election, you know, might have been uh, manipulated or the Russians might have attempted to manipulate it inside Facebook. They and bad actors, including the governments themselves, when they're not democratic, are attempting to manipulate public opinion inside Facebook in literally every country. Yeah. So we need to find a way uh, to somehow combat that. Facebook needs to find a way to combat that. But I don't see how that could ever be found by them alone. I think somehow a new form of compact needs to be arrived at between governments, the general public, yeah. business, and these platforms, particularly Facebook. Many of these same points hold true for Google and some of these other companies, I would say, as well. But Facebook is the one where it's most obvious. David Kirkpatrick, the CEO and founder of Techonomy Media, joining us on those Facebook earnings. Really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. From New York City, you're listening to Bloomberg Surveillance. Kate Warren is an investment strategist at Edward Jones. Uh, we ostensibly brought her in to talk about the Fed and jobs and markets ahead. And I'm going to start with the markets uh, rather than the Fed, because uh, when we started the show today, futures were up. And it was like, all right, you know, forget that little sell-off we had. And then we've started to get some bad earnings numbers today. 
And now we've got these Ford and Fiat Chrysler numbers, which suggest January was not at all a good month for auto sales. Is there a crack in the armor? Is there something to start to be worried about here? Or is this just going to turn out to be a one-day story and then to, tonight Apple or you know, or, or, or uh, Amazon's going to come out and say, yeah, earnings were great and everybody's buying again tomorrow? Well, it's hard to tell because short-term, you never know exactly where the, where the markets are going to move. And I don't think there's really a crack in the armor, but I think investors have gotten a little ahead of themselves in terms of thinking that all the good news we're seeing from earnings earlier was going to translate into nothing but great earnings from everyone. So I wouldn't be too worried about this. I would certainly be using it as an opportunity to add investments to broaden the diversification in your portfolio. But I think it's a good reminder for investors also that if you have too much in stocks, now's the time to add bonds, even though, of course, the Fed's on the way to raising interest well, rates. Well, if I'm buying bonds, they're going down in value, yes, too. Yes, exactly. Everything's going down. And that's a situation where you look at the markets and you say, how do you protect in a world where interest rates are rising and stocks may be you know, <sighs> poised for for dropping. And, and Pim, we don't even have Bitcoin anymore to invest in. So, well, we'd stay away from Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, so, we, that, so we, don't take that as an investment. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Mike, careful there. <laughs> so, so what do you do? I, I think what you do is make sure you've got the right mix of stocks and bonds and you prepare for that volatility by realizing that it's likely to be short term, that stocks are going to bounce like we've seen the last couple of days. But Sometimes you say, intraday. Sorry, but when, but so you, you just, you hold on. But you said, you said the right stocks. Or the right investments. Exactly. What are the right investments? Well, now? I think right now it's quality companies that can make their own luck in this environment. And that's part of why tech has done so well is they've been able to grow markets. They've been able to grow market share. And they've sort of powered through whether the economy was fast or slow. So I'm not too worried about the technology stocks right now. I'd certainly be adding that. But many people may be overweight. So what you're trying to do is be sure you're not taking too much risk in any specific place. And I think that's really the key, which is positioning your portfolio not based on what's just done great, but making sure that you're sort of looking more at, over time, how are these companies going to do well? And do you have the right mix of stocks and bonds to stay invested in case stocks continue to go down? Do, do I want to uh, buy any gold or put any cash aside or or even get into commodities or something something besides stocks and bonds, which is, we were just saying, are both going down? Uh, I think that you don't want to buy gold in this environment unless you think that the price is going higher. And certainly one of the things we've seen disconnect is typically when the U.S. dollar drops, gold goes up. Instead, it's been going down too, although it's somewhat higher. So I would say no, the commodities, gold are not the place to be, that it really is more traditional stocks and bonds, and that's sufficient to build a well-diversified portfolio. Well, if uh, if most of us know that this isn't going to last forever, uh, is it worthwhile setting aside some cash? Yes, I do think it's worthwhile setting aside some cash and buying when we see a bigger dip than we saw or something that lasts a little longer than you know, a few hours. So I do think this is an environment where part of your fixed income portfolio should be a little heavier in cash and a little less in long-term fixed income, especially since the longer-term part of the interest rates has, haven't risen as much as I think they may as people worry more about inflation. You've also written, I believe, that uh, investors may feel worse because of these sudden moves lower, or at least against their positions, 
because they have not had the experience of volatility, at least for the last 12 months. Yes, actually for the last two years, because think about the fact that the last time we had a 10% pullback in stocks was about two years ago. And last year, as we all know, the biggest drop in the S&P 500 was less than 3%. So even the normal 5% moves up and down that we typically see in the stock market haven't been happening. I think we're headed back into that environment, partly because of less accommodation from monetary, from central banks, the Fed, but also the rest of the world, but also because inflation's beginning to pick up. And after this very strong run in the stock market and even the last few months, I think investors are beginning to say, all right, what happens next? We had the benefit of the tax cuts. We've had the benefit of stronger economic growth, of stronger earnings growth. What's going to propel stocks higher? And I think that's where you get more volatility. What is? What are you going to watch for as a, a, a sign that this uh, change is happening? Because we had the big sell-offs earlier in the week, and everybody said, ah, it's finally time for a correction, and then nothing happened. Uh, I would say you never know. Um, because think about the fact that for the last couple of years, investors have really ignored many of the risks that we knew were out there, whether it's geopolitical risk or whether it's policy uncertainty. Uh, investors continue to be positive even when some of the news wasn't so positive. And I think it's uh, the problem in answering your question, Mike, is nobody knows when investors are suddenly going to switch and say, well, there's good news and there's bad news and we're going to react negatively to the bad news as opposed to just ignoring it. And that's what you're really asking. When are people yeah. going to do that? The psychology of markets, I think, is the thing that we never know. And that's why we want to be sure we're always looking at the fundamentals. <laughs> it can make you crazy. Kate Warren of Edward Jones. We're going to continue the theme of talking about automobiles with Mike Jackson. He is the chief executive of Auto Nation. Now, he began his career uh, helping to uh, be a technician at an automotive dealership in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, following his graduation from St. Joseph's University. He joins us now. Mike Jackson, thanks very much for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning. I imagine you can't really fix any of the new cars now with all the technology that's in them. All that experience, it has to go somewhere else. <laughs> Absolutely, but uh, we actually love the uh, complexity and the benefit of the technology in the new cars because as they become ever more sophisticated and complicated, those who have the training, the tools, the equipment, and the skill to repair them become fewer and fewer, and uh, that is our strength, and uh, therefore we are very optimistic about growing our customer care business we currently service over 4 million cars a year, and we increased our customer care gross profit in the fourth quarter by 6%. Uh, let me ask you a, a kind of a oddball question here, but just uh, flowing out of what you were saying there, as a guy who knows what's under the hood, uh, this whole NAFTA uh, trade deal, one of the things it hinges on is automobiles. And the Canadians came up with this concept of if you want to increase the amount of North American produced stuff count the software and technology that they put in cars today that they didn't before. I mean, do you think that's a, a fair idea? I'm very concerned about uh, the entire discussion around uh, NAFTA. Uh, it's been in place for 25 years, clearly needs to be modernized, but the idea of walking away from it would uh, have a significant impact on the auto industry immediately, which has 
built this ballet of suppliers and assembly across a continent with parts moving back and forth across borders uh, several times a day in the, in the millions. So it would really be massively disruptive, and I hope they find a solution. Now, uh, modernize, yes, find a fair way to value where added value uh, comes in, absolutely, and hopefully they find solutions, and I'm open to any suggestions, including let's, let's count how much software development is in these vehicles today, which are, is you know a multiple of what the space shuttle used to be. Mike Jackson, uh, as far as uh, your dealership network goes, uh, you've got what I think it's more than 370 new vehicle franchises in 15 states. You sell 35 new brands, so you have a pretty good pulse on the market. Uh, what are you hearing from uh, from the folks that are managing your individual dealerships? What are their, is their general feeling right now? Well, first, we have our own performance, and we released our fourth quarter earnings today. And on an operating basis, uh, we're our strongest ever with revenue of $5.7 billion, up 4%. But even more importantly, gross profits were up uh, 7% on a same-store sale basis, driven particularly by our performance in pre-owned vehicles being up uh, 16%. So the overall environment is quite good. When I look at the outlook for this year... 2018 for new vehicle sales, um, even though the economy is going to be uh, rather robust, and I'm a big supporter of finally achieving corporate tax reform and what that means for the U.S. economy, U.S. corporations, competitiveness around the world, what it means for the workers of America is all very positive. Uh, paradoxically, I think new vehicle sales will go down somewhat from above 17 million to just below 17 million, around 16.8. That's mainly caused by this new category of vehicle we have due to all the vehicles put in leasing three to four years ago are coming back to market. And it's 4 million vehicles coming back this year at a price point of around 25000 So you have a new segment that's a compelling value offer for the American consumer. So there is a certain substitution or cannibalization away from the new vehicle market into the nearly new market. But the manufacturers will have a good year and we will have a good year. You wear another hat, and that is chairman of the board of the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank. And I'm sure that uh, Rafael Bostic has you in and asks you how things look uh, in the economy. So let me ask you that. Uh, how do things look in the economy? Everybody seems to be very, very confident that this is going to be a strong year. I, I think that is the sentiment that we're hearing from uh, the grassroots level. And one of the things I admire about the Federal Reserve is not only do they have their uh, phenomenal economists, uh, but they are very keen to get a grassroots sense of what's going on in reality uh, through their 12 reserve banks. And I'm honored to serve as chairman. I, I think the debate is, can you have this new level of growth without inflation? And uh, what does it mean for where, where, where are the workers going to come from for this level of, of growth with an unemployment rate of 4.1? And when you get go down to the next level, you say, well, workforce participation has fallen in the U.S. from the high 60s into the low 60s. And this is a structural issue that we have to address in America if you really want 
to sustain growth of uh, 3% or, or even something more. And the big issues there that have to be uh, dealt with is you, you had a robust safety net from the Great Crash that a significant percent of the population got comfortable with. You have a skills gap uh, where we have uh, technical uh, jobs that pay very well, but an education system that's not, uh, not supplying them and a society that doesn't put a big social value on those jobs. So where, where are these workers going to come from? And let's face it, immigration has always been a, a source of increase in the worker population in America and, and supported growth. And immigration is, shall we say, not mm-hmm. exactly functioning smoothly today. So the debate centers around not so much will there be growth. I think there is a sense that growth will actually increase in 2018, maybe to 3%. Uh, but how do you manage the threats of inflation and longer term, where are the workers going to come from? Well, you uh, are in what used to be called an interest rate sensitive uh, industry. Uh, back when we had interest rates, <laughs> now that they're going up again, uh, is there a level at which you think uh, auto buying would suffer? At when a level where people would say, uh, "That makes my monthly payment too high." Well, you know, uh, fortunately, I've been in this business so long that I can remember uh, interest rates of twenty percent and trying to do business with them. Uh, the key issues are availability and affordability of credit, both for corporations and for consumers. And I see no issues there. And the idea that we need crisis rates that were put in place during the Great Crash and the, and the six, seven, eight years that followed, uh, we're not, this economy is not in a crisis. So a step towards normalization of rates is entirely appropriate uh, and entirely uh, makes sense. And I think the new normal of where rates settle down is lower than what it was in the past. So I think it's all manageable. And until inflation uh, aggressively rears its head, um, I think uh, we're fine on both the availability of credit and the pricing of credit. Mike Jackson, in 10 seconds, can you tell us what the biggest mistake is that you find people make when they go into an automobile dealership to buy an automobile or lease one? (laughs) 10 seconds. Uh, First, the consumer prepares themselves like never before uh, through digital and the Internet. So the only mistake you can make is not to go online first. All right. Do all of your homework. Well done. Do all your homework before you come in. Okay. Thanks very much. Uh, Mike Jackson, he is the chief executive of AutoNation. They are based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.